Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Ambassador Jay Stapleton Roy. Ambassador Roy's personal and professional journey in many ways embodies the relationship between the United States and China through much of the 20th century. Born in China to missionary parents in the 1930s, Roy spent the next decade of his youth living in Chengdu, speaking Sichuanese. At the end of World War II, he took a U.S. Navy destroyer up the Yangtze River to continue his schooling in Nanjing and Shanghai. But the Chinese Civil War interrupted young Stapes' education in 1949, just as Mao Zedong was declaring the establishment of the People's Republic of China on October 1st in Tiananmen Square. After leaving Shanghai and coming to the United States, Roy graduated from Princeton and joined the State Department, eventually working on the Soviet Union. Then, following National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger's breakthrough visit to Beijing in 1971, Roy was among the handful of officials involved in establishing official diplomatic relations between the United States and China. He returned to China as the number two at the liaison office before it became an official embassy in 1979. Then again as ambassador a few short years after the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown. Here now is Ambassador Stapleton Roy talking to me about growing up in pre-communist China about how he participated in the secret negotiations to establish diplomatic relations, and about his interactions with Chinese officials and leaders over the last five decades. Ambassador Stapleton Roy, thanks so much for taking time out today. Great to see you. Uh, appreciate you coming to talk with us today. You have an incredible personal history with China and a professional history. I, I wanted to just start uh, what it was like uh, growing up in China and how you felt Chinese people saw you. Your parents were missionaries and you uh, were in a mix of Chinese and kind of foreign households. How do you think you were perceived in, in China by your Chinese friends and contacts? I was born in China, but after one year, my parents went back to uh, the United States for two years of furlough because they'd come to China in 1930, had spent two years in what was called Beiping then, studying Chinese. And then they, they were educational missionaries. Now, I, ha I have to say something about uh, missionaries. Missionaries fall into three groups. They're the evangelical missionaries, uh, who are basically ordained people and who try to convert uh, uh, people to Christianity, depending on whatever uh, variety of Christianity they uh, they belong to, but you also had educational missionaries who were not ministers. Uh, they were educators, and they worked in the colleges and universities that had been established in China with financial support from church contributions in the United States or other countries. 
uh, my parents were educational missionaries. Uh, my father was not a minister. Uh, and you also had the medical missionaries, who was, again, from a desire to help people, uh, essentially went go to foreign countries and, and practice medicine. And again, they're not ordained ministers. Uh, but they're missionaries in the sense that they are trying to set an example of how Christianity and other religions actually can inspire people to try to help their fellow human beings. My parents were assigned to uh, Nanjing, where I was born, uh, and there were many American missionaries there. But when the Japanese invaded China after 1937, uh, the non-Manchurian parts of China after 1937, uh, uh, the University of Nanjing, uh, of Nanking it was called, uh, moved to Chengdu. Chengdu was not an area of, of U.S. missionary presence. And, uh, there were, they were there, but they were, uh, it was basically British and Canadian uh, missionaries there. So we were in a university environment in uh, uh, Chengdu when my family returned to China in 1938. Uh, my father had gotten his MA at Princeton uh, during the period from 36 to 38. Uh, it was wartime. Uh, we were bombed on a regular basis for four years. Uh, uh, when we first arrived there, the Japanese air raids would occur in daytime because there was no air force. Uh, later on, they switched to night bombing. Uh, but either way, we had to get up frequently at night and go to the dugouts uh, and wait till the bombing raids were over. Uh, we lived in a mixed community. The university area, which was called uh, 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 Huashiba, uh, it was where the West China Union University was located. The city of Chengdu itself was a walled city, uh, population 400 to 500,000 people. The capital of Sichuan, a, uh, which was China's most populous pr province uh, at the time, uh, was hundreds of millions. But here, was, Chengdu was a little provincial town, uh, no paved roads. Uh, inside or outside the city? No, none. None. Uh, we lived across the river where the, the, the Jinjiang Hotel now, there's a bridge there. That bridge didn't exist. So when we wanted to go into the city, we had to go along the river bank uh, and then enter the city further down. Only rickshaws, no pedicabs, uh, and Chengdu is very hot in the summer. So we would generally go up into the mountain areas and stay in Buddhist temples, mm -hmm. which was the only place you could have, there were no hotels. So like Omeishan or? We spent one summer uh, in a temple in Omeishan. We spent one summer uh, in Ya'an. Mm -hmm. uh, and we spent one summer at a place called Bailu Ding, uh, which was up near Guanxian. Um, where the river comes out of the mountains. Uh, and it was uh, a half a day hike uh, up into the, the mountains. And there was a, a place on, on a um, 
on a mountaintop where cottages had been built. And we spent a, um, uh, a summer there. So this was just way of escaping the heat. Pre-air conditioning. That's right. In Chengdu itself, when we first arrived, there was a Canadian school, um, which had a, a regular school building and a swimming pool and, and facilities. Uh, this was in 38, I was three years old. I went through kindergarten and began first grade, I guess, with the Canadian school still open. But people were gradually moving back to Europe or, or, or the uh, Western Hemisphere, uh, and the school closed in the early 1940s. So we ended up being homeschooled uh, for the next uh, three to four years. Uh, this was not a problem because it was a university environment. So the, the, the parents were all, all well-educated. And educators. And so we would go from the dining room to kitchens of, of different missionary homes for our schooling. And when you say we, you and your brother? My brother and the other missionary kids there. But uh, you asked about the interactions with the Chinese and how the Chinese viewed us. Uh, you had to make a distinction. Uh, in the university environment, uh, everything was interchangeable. Uh, there, were, there were no barriers. My parents' closest friends were Chinese. Uh, we had uh, Chinese students who usually stayed in our house uh, with us. Um, the, uh, and I, I had playmates who were Chinese because we, sh we lived in a duplex house and the other half of the duplex was occupied by a mid-level uh, Sichuan uh, government official. And he had children that were my age. And so I would go out and play with them. So I grew up speaking pure Sichuan dialect. Uh, I can still distinctly remember that I was embarrassed to hear my parents speak Chinese because they spoke with the, with the Be what's now called the Beijing accent, which to my ears was wrong Chinese. Sounded, <laughs> so so hard and wrong. it was embarrassing to hear them speak it. <laughs> when I went back to the United States at the age of 10, I forgot all of my Sichuanese. And when we went back in 48 mm -hmm. um, and began to relearn Chinese, it was with the, uh, the proper Mandarin pronunciation. And all of a sudden, my parents' Chinese improved got enormously. Much, got much better. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, when you traveled outside, for example, going to Ome, it's, uh, there were no paved roads. All of these were dirt roads. And in many cases, there were no bridges. So you had to travel by truck and you would have these big long boards on the tr truck and when you came to these, uh, not a river, but, but a as you know, a, 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 a stream, you have this enormous um, 2,000 year old uh, irrigation system on, this, on the Chengdu Plain uh, and you would have to cross these, uh, these gullies and uh, you'd, you'd get out of the truck and then put the boards across the gully and then the truck would very carefully drive across the uh, gully and you would then reboard it on the other side. Uh, and you'd do this repeatedly as you moved off toward um, uh, Ome. My first experience is, see, up to the age of 15, 
there were no barriers between foreigners and Chinese. And so we lived uh, in the university community. It, it was completely interaction uh, uh, with Chinese. And in, in Nanjing, uh, I, I'm getting a little disjointed in the way I'm presenting this. I was there from 3 to 10 uh, during World War II. And when the war in Europe ended in 45, uh, we'd already been in China for seven years. And so we exited China via India and took a refugee ship back to um, uh, the United States through the Suez Canal. The war in the Pacific was still continuing, uh, but, but it ended within the month after we got back to the United States. Uh, three years later in 48, we returned to China um, and my brother entered the school in Shanghai where there was a Shanghai American school uh, and I went with my parents to Nanjing where there was still an American school there. Uh, but it closed after two months. And so I was sent down to Shanghai. This is in 46? This is in 48. 48. This is, uh, we got back to China in September of 48. The government had just introduced what was called the gold yuan. Uh, the exchange rate was one US dollar to four uh, gold yuan. So uh, a gold yuan was worth about a quarter uh, US money. Uh, but here's the bizarre thing about uh, how we functioned in Chinese in those days. I, I was 13 years old. Uh, I was evacuated to Shanghai uh, uh, with members of the American community who were beginning to leave China because the communist forces were, get, were getting closer. The school closed. Uh, the school in Nanjing that you were in? In Nanjing. We were evacuated from Nanjing to Shanghai on a U.S. destroyer. Mm -hmm. uh, because in those days uh, of gunboat diplomacy, uh, U.S. destroyers could go up the, uh, uh, the river. Uh, uh, but when I arrived in Shanghai, uh, as a 13-year-old, I was not escorted by anybody. Nobody met me. So I had to take a pedicab out to the Shanghai American School. And that was about a 40-minute ride from the dock to where the school was located. Uh, and uh, I tried to pay with one gold yuan, and he didn't have change. <laughs> so, so I generously let him keep the, rest of the, <laughs> the, one, the one gold yuan. Uh, it just illustrates. Within five months, the exchange rate was jumping by a hundred million a day. Wow. Uh, so the gold yuan had become worthless. And uh, everybody used silver, silver uh, coins. Uh, and the streets were lined with people who would have 20 or 30 silver coins balanced on their arms. And they would walk along and move their arms so that the top one would click. So if you, if you wanted to get some money, you would listen for the clicking sound. <laughs> and the, the silver co the coins were? The silver coins didn't, um, there was no inflation with respect to them. But the paper money, mm -hmm. it, reached, it reached an extreme where uh, the money was cheaper than the paper it was printed on. So that actually a beer company, I remember, began to use $25,000 bills uh, uh, to print their labels on. To put it on the beer <laughs> on bottle. On the beer bottle. Because <laughs> the paper was worth something to print. The That's right. Uh, 
but that was that was just before the communists uh, uh, took the city. And, and you'd mentioned foreigners were starting to leave then. Was there a sense at that moment that, wow, when the communists take over, we as foreigners are going to have to leave? We're just not going to be allowed here? Uh, there was a sense that, that normal patterns of behavior would be disrupted. Uh, but this did not apply to the missionaries who worked in the educational institutions. Uh, so what happened is... Uh, a lot of the business and official uh, Nanjing was the capital of uh, of the Republican China. Uh, a lot of the uh, of officialdom, uh, dependents, and business community left. Uh, others who were settled in occupations that would continue, uh, uh, some of them stayed on, some of them left. My parents had just come back to China, and they were inclined to stay. And so they didn't think that just because uh, the Communist Party was going to uh, control all of China that somehow their educational work would be... We, we didn't know what was going to happen. But uh, my brother and I were in Shanghai. My parents were in Nanjing. The Communist forces took Nanjing in April of 1949, and we were left in Shanghai. Our relatives in the United States were frantically telling us to get on the next boat and come back. Um, and my brother and I consulted, I can still remember, met several times. Mm -hmm. I was 13, he was 15. Um, and we decided to stay. The two of you decided? The two of us decided to stay. And the Shanghai American School stayed open, although the student body uh, collapsed, so that there were only um, several dozen students left by the time the uh, communist forces entered Shanghai. After the communists took over, the big question was stabilizing the city. Uh, and this was new for the communists. They hadn't been running big cities like Shanghai. But after a month, we were able to get permission to go back to Nanjing. So my brother and I and one other missionary classmate of my brother's, a, a uh, uh, girl, uh, went back to Nanjing. At the time, we didn't know whether the Shanghai American School was going to be able to continue. So um, uh, we went back to Nanjing with the expectation that we would go back to Shanghai. And I presume, sorry, not on a destroyer this time, back to Not Nanjing. on a destroyer, no, on a train. And all trains in China at that time uh, were so crowded that you always had uh, a lot of people on the roofs of the, uh, if you've seen Indian movies, you, you sometimes see this. But that was the pattern in, um, uh, uh, in China, people rode on top of the rail cars uh, as well as inside. Uh, Sorry, so you went back to Nanjing. We went back to Nanjing, but just for precaution purposes, we took textbooks mm. with us, uh, and which was fortunate because uh, the Chinese didn't officially close the school. What they did was uh, they put a claim for back taxes to the 1920s that they claimed the school had not paid, and the, the essentially bankrupted the school. Mm -hmm. so, so, so the new rulers of Shanghai, the communist yeah. rulers, looked at the tax yeah. information and said, yeah, the school didn't pay, and so we need to have that. That's right. Interesting. So then you went back to Nanjing, you brought your books with you, you didn't end up going back to Shanghai. Didn't end up going back to Shanghai. So then the question was homeschooling, uh, because there was no school um, uh, in Nanjing. But we were in a university environment again, and so um, there were only three of us 
and there were two children of a Dutch, uh, the Dutch charge. Uh, so uh, the five, uh, four of us, uh, the the oldest son of the Dutch charge was was at college level. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the other one was at the level of my brother. So the four of us uh, uh, began homeschooling in the homes of university professors. Uh, and uh, that continued for the, for the next year. So that uh, for you, that would have been beginning of high school, is that right? I was in... Um, or end of middle school. The problem was I'd completed my ninth grade at Shanghai, and, my, and I'd skipped the grade when I was in the United States, so I was only one year behind my brother. Uh, but they were both a year ahead of me. Uh, it didn't work to have us have separate uh, years, so that I took my junior year after my freshman year. Uh, I joined them in their courses. Uh, then when I came back to the United States, uh, it was a little awkward because <laughs> I went to Mount Hermon in Massachusetts and took my I entered as a sophomore, mm -hmm. and then jumped to my senior year. <laughs> and your parents stayed, is that right? My parents stayed, um, and but after the the period from the communist takeover until um, the outbreak of the Korean War, uh, we didn't have any real harassment at all. Before we get to the Korean War, I just want to ask: When Mao uh, proclaimed the founding of the People's Republic right. on October first, where were you? How did you guys hear the news? What what did that? What was that like? Here's the way it impacted on us. Nanjing had been the until the the People's Republic of China was proclaimed on October first of nineteen forty nine. Nanjing had remained the capital of China, and so the embassies uh, were all located in Nanjing, uh, and they had a a much higher standard of living than we missionary people who were living on the local economy. Uh, but after they established the um, People's Republic of China. Uh, many of the European countries recognized the new government. And so they then began the process of moving their embassies up to Beijing. Uh, and the American embassy uh, wasn't certain what to do. Uh, we, hadn't, we hadn't made a decision yet of whether we'd recognize the new communist government. Uh, so that uh, the ambassador was uh, Leighton Stewart, uh, and I remember in '49, uh, right after returning from Shanghai to Nanjing for, after the communist takeover, uh, he had a little private reception for the very reduced American community. Uh, but he didn't do an official reception because we didn't have official relations with the communist authorities. Uh, but in the in the fall of uh, and especially after the establishment of the People's Republic of China, the American embassy pulled out, and the British took over the protection uh, responsibility uh, for us. So that when we actually ended up leaving after the outbreak of the Korean War in June of 1950, uh, we traveled on British documents that had been issued on behalf of the American government as the protecting power. Sorry, you were saying, so then the, the, after the pro proclamation of the People's Republic on October 1st, you were saying relations seemed okay or you, things... Things continued normally except for the pullout of the diplomatic community. 
uh, which which uh, uh, which affected quality of life a little bit, uh, but uh, in, in other respects, life went on normally. Mm -hmm. It was the outbreak of the Korean War that was a, sh uh, a, a big break. We did not encounter overt anti-Americanism uh, during that first year, from the summer of 49 until, the, until June of 1950. Hmm. But after the Korean War broke out, of course, the, uh, the story put out was that the uh, South Korea had attacked North Korea, and the North Koreans had then counterattacked and that uh, the Americans, and things didn't change until the Americans entered the war, which was two to three days later. Uh, and then the environment became hostile uh, to the United States. And that's when my parents made the decision that my brother and I should go back to the United States uh, so that our schooling wouldn't be interrupted. And at a personal level, people stop you on the street and ask if you were American or say something? No. Uh, uh, Curiously, the, the sentiment at the time um, toward foreigners was um, if, if they were thought to be Russians, mm -hmm. th there was some hostility. Wow. So there was anti-Russian or anti-Soviet mm -hmm. um, uh, feelings, but I never encountered a single experience at that time of anti-American uh, uh, feeling. Oh, One thing uh, we, did, we did encounter was under the under the KMT, foreigners sort of got special treatment, and that ended under the communists. Uh, but my parents never liked the special treatment, and my brother and I inherited that attitude. Mm -hmm. So we actually thought it was a good thing mm -hmm. that the Chinese government was treating us like everybody else. So you came back to the U.S. and your parents stayed for some time? Uh, they stayed until the spring of 1951. Uh, uh, and as I say, they ended up in house arrest, and uh, then they had a public trial, uh, and my father was accused of being an imperialist spy, uh, and my parents ended up being expelled. Uh, my brother and I and Joan Smith, who was the third, um, when we left in July of 1950, uh, again, just the three of us traveling uh, uh, together, uh, we took a train back to Shanghai uh, and had enough of a layover uh, to be able to take a pedicab out to the Shanghai American School just to see. To take a look. Uh, uh, but it had been occupied by a Chinese uh, government institution. Uh, so we just looked at it from the outside. And then we continued on to Guangzhou. Uh, by boat to Guangzhou? No, by train. By train to Guangzhou. It was about two, it was two nights on the train, I think. So it was a, a, a two-day trip. Um, and then you went down to where Shenzhen is now, mm -hmm. uh, which was just rice paddies. And the hotel you stayed in there consisted of wooden planks over a swamp with bamboo screens between the so-called rooms. And you slept on wooden boards on, on sawhorses. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and these were people who were waiting to have their documents checked to get, get into Hong Kong? This was waiting to have your documents checked, and you then carried your suitcases and walked across the bridge to Hong Kong. Uh, and then you were in Hong Kong. I'd like to move to your next visit to China, right. which I think was with a congressional delegation in 1976. That's correct. Um, could you talk a little bit about, and I think uh, I've heard you say publicly you met with one of the members of the Gang of Four with yes, this delegation. Yes, uh, uh, Zhang Junxiao. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that congressional delegation and right. then also how that meeting went? When my brother and I came back from China, uh, I ended up, he ended up going to Harvard and I ended up going to Princeton. And when I uh, graduated from Princeton, I joined the Foreign Service. So I joined the Foreign Service in 1956 uh, and was assigned to Chinese language training uh, uh, in Taiwan for a year. And then I was two years in our embassy in, um, in Bangkok. And then I was assigned to our consulate general in Hong Kong. And then I was pulled out of there to go be the special assistant to our ambassador in Taipei at that time. So this is just the, the background uh, leading up to it. And then I went off to Mongolian training, and from that we didn't establish diplomatic relations with Mongolia at that time, so I was assigned to the Soviet desk. Uh, and I'd been working on the uh, uh, Soviet desk for, uh, I spent nine years working on the Soviet Sorry, so you were saying back to 1976 okay. and, and your trip. Yeah. Well, uh, at the end of my Soviet uh, period, I was assigned to the National War College. And at the end of that, I was uh, decided to try to switch back to the um, East Asia. Did you always know that you wanted to work on East Asia, given your kind of personal background and interests? What got me into the Foreign Service was that uh, your junior year in college, you begin to worry about what you want to do when you graduate. And uh, I was interested in international affairs because of the experience of living abroad, and a State Department recruiter came to Princeton and gave a talk about the Foreign Service, which sounded exciting. And uh, uh, I was reading about Foreign Service officers in the courses I was taking at Princeton, so it sounded interesting. So I decided I would try to join the uh, uh, Foreign Service. Uh, and at the time, this was 1956, they were not uh, generally hiring people straight out of college. If you passed the oral, the written exam, uh, and you took your oral exam, they would often say, uh, you've done well, um, but go do your military service, come back in two years or three years, and uh, you won't have to retake the exams. Etc. So that was what I was expecting. So I applied for a military program uh, to become a Navy flyer, uh, and uh, then I passed my Foreign Service oral, and they offered me an appointment. Come on in. Yeah, I, same day that I got my orders to go to Pensacola to begin my Navy training. <laughs> so I went to my draft board, and I said, what's my draft status? And they said 50-50. Uh, so I decided that I'd join the Foreign Service. So that's, I got into the Foreign Service in 56, but I finished the War College in class of 75 and was assigned to the... What happened while I was in Moscow is Henry Kissinger shows up in Beijing uh, and totally changed my work in Mos Moscow. Mm -hmm. 
because the Russians had refused to give me any access to their China specialists. Uh, so you were in Moscow as a kind of Asia watcher for the embassy or foreign policy? Well, n actually, I went into Moscow. I'd been three years on the Soviet desk. And then I'd gone to advanced Russian training in uh, Garmisch, Germany. Uh, so I did not go into Moscow as an Asian specialist, but as a Russian specialist. Uh, at the time, we had a program of assigning officers from um, East Asia, Africa, uh, Middle East, Latin America to our embassy in Moscow, giving them a year of Russian language training. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they would go back to their own specialties uh, with some, knowledge of, with some knowledge of what the Soviet Union was all about. Uh, because most of our embassies were completely ignorant. You know, the, oh, the Russians are coming. You know, they didn't know anything at all about the Soviet Union. Uh, and we had one of those officers in the embassy when I was assigned to it after the language training. Uh, but I was assigned as an administrative officer. Uh, uh, the, the deputy administrative officer in, in Moscow was a language officer, whereas the administrative counselor uh, often didn't have Russian. And so uh, I, I, I was the, the Russian voice in the, um, but then after a year and a quarter or something, um, the Asia specialists left and I was moved up to the political section uh, and covered Asia. But I couldn't get any access to their Asia specialists mm -hmm. until Henry Kissinger showed up in Beijing. Mm -hmm. And this was in July of 71. So that completely changed everything for me because all of a sudden they wanted to talk to me to try to find they out what was to. going on in, in U.S.-China relations. Uh, and then when I came, then I came back from Moscow, spent two years on the Soviet desk. I was the deputy director of the Soviet desk. Uh, I went to the National War College and then I wanted to get back into East Asia. But they didn't want me in East Asia because I was a Soviet specialist. And the people had forgotten that I actually knew Chinese and had served in East Asia. Uh, uh, fortunately, an older officer, uh, more senior, uh, had been serving in, in um, uh, again, a, a missionary kid, uh, Bill Gleistein. Uh, he was senior to me in the Foreign Service. He had been serving in Tokyo and had come to Taipei. Uh, and I had accompanied him uh, on his calls on the on the Chinese government there. So he knew I spoke Chinese. So when people said I was only a specialist, he said nonsense. <laughs> so that's, I, th th that's how I got back in as, um, as deputy director of the China desk. Uh, at the time, this was 75, uh, Nixon had resigned, as you recall, and Gerald Ford was the president. Uh, Ford was making up his mind whether or not to try for uh, uh, diplomatic relations with China by the end of his first term, which of course was just the final, but uh, Nixon resigned in August of 74. So Ford had a, essentially a year and a half until the elections in 76. Uh, and he decided that he'd wait until he got reelected to do it. So uh, there wasn't a lot going on on the policy front. 
But after we had established the liaison offices in Beijing, we had an agreement that we would send one or possibly two congressional delegations to China a year. Uh, and when I became the deputy director of the, of the China desk, I would become the escort officer for these delegations going. So you would brief them beforehand, tell them what was going to happen, and then accompany them? And, go, and accompany with them. When you brief people in Washington, you're lucky to get 15 minutes of their time, and you're lucky to get five minutes of their attention. When you're escorting them to China, they're intensely interested, and while they're in Beijing, they are totally focused. When they leave Beijing and start traveling to other parts of China, they then begin drinking and, uh, and, and relaxing. Get and, distracted. And, 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 and get distracted. But you get really quality time with the, uh, uh, with the members of Congress when you escort them there. This was, I was an escort to the House uh, Armed Services Committee. And we'd not sent any of our military, uh, of our congressional delegations with military responsibilities. So this was the first one. And this was in April of 1976. Well, if you, 76 was a very important year in China. Uh, Zhou Enlai had died in, uh, in uh, January of 76. Deng Xiaoping, who had been brought back, it, the Cultural Revolution was still going on, but Deng Xiaoping had been brought back uh, and was serving as vice premier, uh, but he had dropped out of sight. There had then been a demonstration in uh, Tiananmen Square in April of uh, 76, uh, two weeks before our delegation. And the, de the demonstration was a protest that Joe and Lai's death had been given so little attention. Interesting parallel to the demonstrations in, in 89 uh, over Hu Yaobang. Uh, not having been given appropriate um, uh, attention. So what was interesting at that time was that I uh, accompanied three congressional delegations to China, each in April of 76, 77, 78. Mm -hmm. And then I was assigned to the liaison office in the summer of 78 uh, as the deputy um, chief of the liaison office. So you'd say, I've heard you talk a little bit about the meeting. Did you guys meet in the Great Hall of the People? We met in the Great Hall of the People, and uh, we had a discussion of international affairs. But all of our meetings, I can still remember we went out to uh, uh, Peking University and Tsinghua and met with them, and they were justifying the reduction of the school year to three years, which occurred under the Cultural Revolution. Uh, we met with the Chinese military for the first time, not a very warm and friendly meeting. Uh, the Most senior military at that time in many cases had fought against us in Korea themselves. Uh, some of our people, uh, some members of Congress had fought in the Korean War. Mm -hmm. So it, it didn't establish good camaraderie uh, under circumstances at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but it was interesting. Uh, but the meeting with Jiang Chinchao was heavily ideological. Uh, he talked the type of communist jargon that I was familiar with from my days in Moscow, uh, socialist internationalism, and, and it, it was quite clear that if 
if if a government with that ideological way of looking at the world mm-hmm. uh, remained in power in China, that we were not going to have an easy time uh, working out our bilateral relationship. Um, but they were gone uh, by the uh, uh, Zhang Junqiao, one of the, he, he said, people say there's instability in China. He says, uh, you were just in Tiananmen Square. Did you see any demonstrations? He said, everything is calm in China. Six months later, of course, they were purged. Uh, Not so calm for him, right? Yeah. Um, I'd like to move to your time as the deputy of the of the liaison office and right. the kind of establishment of diplomatic relations, which was done under a fair amount of secrecy. Could you just talk a little bit about U.S. objectives and how those were conducted and who your counterparts were on the Chinese side? Let me lead up to that. When the um, the seventy seven six elec- elections of Poor did not get reelected, and Jimmy Carter came in. Uh, and you ended up with a uh, disagreement between Cy Vance and uh, Brzezinski. Brzezinski was the National Security Advisor, Cy Vance was the Secretary of State. Um, Carter wanted to move ahead with a uh, strategic arms agreement with uh, the Soviet Union, and he wanted to move ahead on trying to get normalized relations with China. Um, Vance wanted to push the Soviet, uh, give it priority. Uh, Brzezinski wanted to push the China side. Uh, Vance won. Uh, so the, the priority during 77 was on uh, negotiating with the Soviet Union. Um, and Brzezinski's motivation was to put pressure on the Soviets by establishing diplomatic relations with the Chinese, or was it merely a bureaucratic difference? I think the primary motive on Brzezinski's side was recognition that we needed diplomatic relations with China. Uh, because as I discovered during my, I, I was six months under the liaison office before we established diplomatic relations, our activities were very constrained. The only Chinese government office that we could meet with was the U.S. Uh, and Oceanian Affairs uh, Department of, the foreign, ministry. of the foreign Ministry. We had no access to other uh, departments of the Foreign Ministry. Uh, and it was quite clear that getting the benefits of the strategic breakthrough with China that had essentially made us strategic partners in dealing with the Soviet threat uh, couldn't be realized if we were constrained by not having diplomatic relations. I think Brzezinski understood this. But Brzezinski also was a Pole uh, in his blood. And if anything would uh, uh, make the the Soviets unhappy, he, he was in favor of it. So I think there was that element. Uh, to his, but he he was not out to sabotage the the the, uh, the start talks uh, with the Soviet Union uh, either, but the start talks did not go somewhere. There was a mistaken belief, which I did not share, having served on the Soviet side, that somehow improving relations with China was negative in terms of our relations with the Soviet Union. Uh, I thought quite the opposite. Uh, because I'd been serving in Moscow in 72 when President Nixon went to Beijing. 
and he was scheduled to come into Moscow uh, in May uh, after his visit to Beijing. But in the spring of 1972, uh, we were having some severe military problems with the Vietnamese. Uh, and we engaged in carpet bombing of uh, the outskirts of Hanoi. And uh, the question was, will the Soviets cancel the summit meeting because of that? Uh, I was confident that they would not. <laughs> and it turned out that was accurate. Actually, uh, uh, our moving ahead with China was a positive influence in terms of dealing with the Soviet Union, but that was not broadly shared in the U.S. government. Uh, but the START talks ran into problems. And uh, that gave Brzezinski the opportunity to uh, push ahead the Chinese negotiations. So for that first year, that, that was useful, actually, because during 1977, uh, I was on, on the China desk. I was actively involved in preparing the policy recommendations for the president on what we ought to do about trying to get um, uh, diplomatic relations with China. And we ended up giving him three options, uh, two of which uh, set as a goal something short of full diplomatic relations, but enabled us to retain uh, some sort of official relations with Taiwan. Uh, and the, th the third one recognized that we couldn't have any official relationship with Taiwan if we went for diplomatic relations. The president opted for the third. And at that point, I was assigned to, uh, uh, I, rather, I was picked by Leonard Woodcock to be his deputy. And he was tasked with the job of, of carrying out the negotiations. Since I was intimately familiar with the policy papers, I think that's one of the reasons he picked me. And everything was very secret, uh, and I was fully read in on it. So that. Uh, uh, I was assigned to the liaison office in June of 1978, and we began the uh, secret ne negotiations uh, in July of 78. And your counterpart on the Chinese side was the foreign ministry? Foreign, minister, foreign was minister was Huang Hua. Mm -hmm. uh, so Leonard Woodcock and, uh, and Huang Hua uh, had a series of meetings beginning right after July 4th. I think we, our first meeting was on July 5th, uh, 78. And our game plan had been that we would uh, deal with different sets of issues. We recognized the most difficult sets of issues would be the relationship with Taiwan, and particularly the military relationship. Uh, but we had to also discuss the economic and other uh, 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 questions. So our uh, idea was we'd, we'd deal with one issue and then hear the Chinese response to that and then we'd move on to another issue. Chinese would have none of that. They wanted us to lay all our cards on the table and, uh, and, and then respond. So we had a series of meetings uh, uh, at which we ran through each of these um, baskets of issues. Uh, and uh, meeting with Huang Hua. In any event, when we were ready for the Chinese response, um, the, uh, we were told that Huang Hua was ill, and we had to meet with Han Yanlong, who was the vice foreign minister. Well, that presented a problem for us, 
because we hadn't yet heard the Chinese response. And as a result, we didn't know whether it was a diplomatic illness, mm -hmm. meaning they were dissatisfied with our presentation mm -hmm. and therefore they were lowering the level of the talks, mm -hmm. or whether Huang Hua was genuinely ill and, and we should go ahead. So we consulted with Washington mm -hmm. and uh, mutually agreed that we should go ahead with the meeting mm -hmm. anything. To hear what the Chinese had to say. Then we met with Han Yanlong, mm -hmm. and his response was basically positive. And at the end of the meeting, he said that Deng Xiaoping would want to meet with us, which, again, was a very positive signal. So obviously, they weren't downgrading. Actually, we were being bucked up to a higher level. But they didn't say, he said it would be in the near future, but we didn't know when. Well, this was awkward for me because my wife and I had a trip planned in China, and Woodcock didn't want me to be away from the liaison office. He didn't know when to come. But my wife didn't know about the secret negotiations, and, and so I had to cancel the trip, <laughs> coming up with some <laughs> uh, story about it. So it was a little bit, um, a, a little bit awkward. Uh, but in any event, it, I, I guess within ten days, t two weeks, we began our meetings with Deng Xiaoping. That, led to the final agreement. And at that moment, Deng Xiaoping was what rank officially? He was the vice premier. Uh, Hua Guofeng was the, uh, uh, was the uh, premier, which was an awkward thing for us because uh, in reaching agreement, we, we were inviting a Chinese leader to visit um, Washington. We assumed the leader should be Deng Xiaoping, but he was only a vice premier. Uh, and we didn't want to insult the Chinese by ignoring the premier. So we ended up inviting a senior level uh, Chinese leader to visit the United States, and Deng said, I accept. <laughs> so, so that removed the problem for us. <laughs> Let their system deal with it that way. That's right. I just wanted to back up for, for one second before moving on to other areas of the normalization discussion was when you went back to China to live, did you have any contacts or friends from your earlier time that you were able to kind of reconnect with? Or, yes. Uh, and and how was that? Most foreigners who go to China um, are given transliterated names. Uh, they may take a Chinese form, but they... Uh, uh, in many in many cases, well, uh, for example, Trump is referred to as Talong Pu, uh, which any Chinese would 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 know is a transliterated name as opposed to a Chinese name. But I had grown up in China. My father had a Chinese surname, uh, and I had a Chinese name going back to my childhood. So uh, when I was assigned to the liaison office, the question was, what Chinese name should I should I use? And I wanted to use my original Chinese name, uh, and the foreign ministry agreed. So that uh, any time there was a reference to me in the press, anyone who had known my family mm -hmm. was able to make the connection. Um, <clears throat> uh, just, I just wanted to finish up on the normalization right. part of it, uh, which is... Um, Deng Xiaoping had strong views on the U.S. relationship with Taiwan and what it should or shouldn't be. Uh. Could you just kind of talk a little bit about what the Chinese position was and kind of where we ended up? 
the Chinese had set three bottom line conditions. And this was reflected in the papers that were presented to um, President Carter. So that he recognized that to meet the Chinese conditions, we had to break diplomatic relations with Taiwan and only maintain unofficial relations. We had to end our security treaty, and we had to withdraw uh, our military personnel. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot on Taiwan. Uh, they were mostly advisory groups, uh, but we had to remove them. Um, so, but we were not prepared to uh, halt arms sales. Uh, in other words, we were not prepared to sort of abandon Taiwan. Uh, we wanted to enable it to, to, to keep sufficient self-defense capability so that it wouldn't be just gobbled up. Uh, we recognized that was going to be the most difficult issue. So when we got to that portion of the presentation, we had some very carefully worked out languages that didn't sort of confront him with it, but which made clear that we would intend to in continue arms sales in Taiwan after breaking relations with them and ending the uh, military relationship. Uh, when we finally reached agreement with Deng Xiaoping and had drafted the communique, Carter, who was very, very good, uh, he didn't leave anything ambiguous. They came out to us and said, does Deng understand that we are going to continue arms sales? And uh, Woodcock and I consulted, <laughs> and we, we went back to Washington, and we said, uh, we you know, faithfully presented the talking points, uh, which should have conveyed the thing. But we could not exclude the possibility that he would read it in terms of his interests as opposed to our interests. So we cannot say with total certainty that he understands that. And as we expected, Carter came back and said, uh, go back in and tell him uh, straightforward. So that's what we did. And he was, it confirmed that he had misread our language. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he was truly angry truly angry because we were, the, we were at the point of almost making the announcement and here he was confronted with this arms sales thing. What we didn't know, of course, also is that they were having a, uh, a um, plenum was going on which was about to announce the reform and openness policies. Uh, so he was busy during that time is what you're saying. That's right, and he had probably briefed the leaders on an agreement that did not involve continuing arms sales, and we, were, we went back in and said, we have to, uh, we are going to be continuing this. Um, so uh, he, was, he, was, he was really angry, uh, uh, but at the end, when he, when, he, when he calmed down, he said to Woodcock, he says, you know, this is unacceptable, what should we do? And Woodcock said, uh, we can't solve this here. Uh, but my judgment is that uh, we, we can deal with this problem more effectively if we have diplomatic relations than if we don't. And, and Dung thought for a moment and said, OK. And, and uh, but then he came back. He didn't want arms sales to continue while we, because we had insisted on terminating the security treaty with Taiwan according to the terms of the treaty. And that meant you had to give a year's notice. 
So he didn't want arms sales during the year. And we didn't know how Washington was going to react to that. Uh, but they accepted that so that we didn't make any um, arms sales during 1979. Uh, and then the Taiwan Relations Act passed. And the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, our, our big problem was how to, uh, it was an unprecedented problem in diplomatic affairs. How do you maintain a, a robust, unofficial relationship with an entity with whom you have numerous treaties, commercial treaties, uh, uh, business treaties, all sorts of, um, uh, of things. And eventually we came up with this idea of a, um, of a Taiwan Relations Act uh, necessary to provide the legal underpinning uh, for the unofficial relationship with Taiwan. Uh, the, time, the concept of the Taiwan relations was the Carter administration. Some people are misunderstand it and think that this is Congress forced the Taiwan Relations Act on the Carter administration. That's not accurate. Um, the draft of the, uh, of, the, of the act was presented to Congress after we announced the establishment of diplomatic relations. I want to make an additional point because it's related to the issue of secrecy. Uh, before we began the negotiations, we went down to Congress and met with the top leadership uh, on both the Republican and Democratic side and briefed them on our bottom line, which included breaking relations with Taiwan, ending the security treaty, and uh, removing the military forces. Uh, so that the top leadership in Congress knew that we were going to agree to those things, and they did not object. And this is a time when Taiwan still had a lot of friends on Capitol they, Hill. They had enormous friends on the thing. Uh, they told us we were doing the right thing, but that they would publicly criticize us for doing it. So that was, so if, if there had been leakage of the negotiations, they probably would have been aborted because Congress would have raised objections. But as long as you could keep it secret, they were willing to accept a fait accompli. <laughs> So uh, this was quite nerve-wracking because maintaining secrecy is not easy in Washington, but it was done successfully. Uh, it caused some resentment in the liaison office because our staff cut out. were cut out totally of, of what was going on, and, uh, and uh, people don't like to be cut out. <laughs> but Congress did strengthen the security language in the um, Taiwan Relations Act, which is carefully scripted. It's not a NATO agreement or uh, something, but it makes it clear that we would consider a threat to the security of Taiwan as, a, as a, something the U.S. government had to uh, give serious attention to. Uh, and the Chinese reaction to the Taiwan Relations Act? Very negative. Very negative. Uh, we... we, 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 we told the Chinese that we would be taking steps to enable us to carry out an unofficial relationship with Taiwan, but that was U.S. domestic affairs. So we did not brief them on how we intended to do it. Uh, that was not a negotiable issue, in other words. We were going to have to do it our way. Um, so moving to your time as ambassador, yeah. you uh, came back uh, in 91. Uh, right. Uh, after 
after the Tiananmen crackdown, um, what was that like to, I guess I should ask first, you were back in the department, back in the State Department right. during the Tiananmen uh, incident. But not as deputy assistant I had become the executive secretary of the State Department. I was a special assistant to Secretary Baker. Uh, so I was watching it as a non-participant. Mm. Uh, and was your, uh, from what you saw, I know there was a lot of interaction between the White House and the State right. Department on kind of what the reaction should be, what the right. U.S. should do. Uh, from where you sat in the Executive Secretary Office and Secretary of State, right. what did you see as kind of U.S. goals or U.S. policy, and then how did we do in kind of implementing that? Leaders are human beings. And George Herbert Walker Bush, who became president in, um, in 1989, uh, had been head of our liaison office uh, in Beijing from 1974 to 75. 75, he came back as head of the CIA. Uh, when I arrived at the liaison office, Oh, well, while he was the um, liaison office head, uh, that overlapped with when I came back on the China desk. So when he would come back to Washington to go call in Congress or to uh, senior government officials, I would accompany him. As uh, deputy director of the China desk. As deputy director of the China desk, uh, bag carrier, note taker, what have you. Uh, so we got, we got to know each other. Um, uh, uh, at, at that time. Uh, when my wife and I were assigned to the um, liaison office in the summer of 78, uh, my wife's arrival was delayed because she just had our third child. And she arrived six weeks after I got there, I guess, with a six-week-old child. Uh, Barbara Bush had just come in to town at the same time, uh, and our we shared a uh, our two apartments faced each other in the apartment building the, with the economic counselor in the liaison office, and I was in the DCM apartment, and Barbara Bush knew the economic counselor who had served with her in the liaison office when they were the head, but her purpose in coming back to China was to tell the Chinese leaders that her husband had made the decision to run for president in 1980. This is part of the, in other words, he was, he was competing with Ronald Reagan for the nomination. When he didn't get it, he ended up as the vice president for the next eight years. But, uh, and that's an interesting story because my wife arrives with a six-week-old child in hand and, uh, 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 we're, we're invited to dinner with the economic counselor and Barbara Bush. <laughs> Happens to be there. My wife fell asleep in the middle of the dinner. <laughs> Literally, just out. Barbara Bush could not have been nicer. She said, you're a mother. You go right back and go to sleep. Uh, and uh, left a very nice impression. She was, uh, uh, well, when President Bush became president, uh, one of his great desires was to uh, visit China as president. One can understand uh, why you want to do that. So 
when he uh, had to go to Tokyo in connection for the funeral of the Emperor of Japan, who had died, he decided to add on a, uh, a trip to, to uh, and at that time I was still the Deputy Assistant Secretary for China. So I went on the trip to, to Tokyo and then on to, uh, uh, to China. And uh, Reagan had established the tradition that when you visited a authoritarian government system that you made some gesture toward the opposition elements. And so the question was how to handle that. And uh, uh, the, the, the big figure at the time was Fang Li who was the physicist. And we thought that it would be unduly provocative for the president to meet with Fang at the ambassador's residence. Uh, that would be a high-profile event. Uh, but the president was hosting a, a dinner for uh, 500 people. So we decided to include him on the, on the guest list. At a hotel, <clears throat> not at a residence. At a hotel, not at the residence. And there would be no particular meeting with the president. He would just be there as a guest. Uh, that was unexpected. Dung had a, had a thing about Fang Li uh, So they physically prevented him from attending the, uh, the dinner. And uh, when I went back to Washington, uh, I had a regular, every two weeks I would have a lunch with the ECM at the Chinese Embassy, uh, just to go over things. It was useful for him, it was useful for me on, on the thing. And I, I mentioned this, I said, I, I expressed bafflement. I said, we were trying to handle this in a low-key fashion, and you turned it into a worldwide uh, uh, news story by refusing to let the Fang Li Jiu attend the, the banquet. I said, I don't, I don't understand. And he said, you don't understand how volatile the situation in China is. And the word volatile stuck in my mind because our, we were perplexed. Um, this must have been after the demonstrations in, uh, in uh, Tiananmen Square had already begun. Bush went at the end of February. Demonstrations began in March, April. Um, this is 1989. This is 1989. But I shared this conversation with all of the top China specialists in Washington at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of them refused to accept volatile as an accurate reflection of the situation in China. Uh, so when the Tiananmen events occurred and revealed the deep split in the Politburo at the very top, uh, this is what we had not been aware of. Uh, in other words, we knew that Li Peng and, and Zhao Ziyang had differing views on various things, but we didn't realize the, how deep the split was. So, so that's a way of responding to this question of, uh, we, we, in the run-up to Tiananmen, the June 4 uh, uh, events, we did not have an accurate picture Although we, there were some things that we didn't understand, 
we didn't understand why the students had not been removed from Tiananmen Square. Because the reason the world press media was all in Beijing was for the visit by Gorbachev. Uh, uh, and our assumption was they would clear out Tiananmen before the uh, before the Gorbachev visit. When they didn't do that, it didn't make sense. And so we were puzzling over why. And we didn't have this inner information about the depth of the dispute between uh, 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 Zhao Ziyang and Li Peng on this question. You've just had a lot of experience dealing with all sorts of Chinese officials and non-officials yeah. at different mm -hmm. levels. Uh, in your experience, uh, what sort of interactions end up producing um, a result that is positive for both sides? Um, there's a kind of balance between some Chinese officials are a bit more uh, stiff and formal, others are a bit more kind of friendly. Uh, is there a different kind of Chinese official that makes a difference? Uh, is public versus private work? H how would you kind of characterize in a kind of big picture way what, what sort of works in conveying a U.S. message and getting some movement on a policy issue that, that matters? Any ambassador looks for somebody on the other side who is interested in solving problems. Uh, if you can find somebody, uh, even though that person faithfully represents the views of the government, uh, that he uh, represents. But if they're interested in working toward a solution, then you have something you can work with. The second thing is I find that preaching to people, uh, despite my missionary background, is the worst possible way to deal with people. So you have to look for a way of presenting an issue uh, uh, so that it, w it, it won't uh, be counterproductive. I'll give you an example. Uh, when the Carter administ uh, Clinton administration came in, they decided to link um, most favored nation treatment to China to uh, seven areas of human rights. And the language was that there had to be fundamental pro progress in one year in these seven areas of human rights. Uh, uh, for us to be willing to continue most favored nation treatment for China's, well, I had I had to um, um, make a demarche on this question, uh, and the real problem was to avoid being thrown out of the office because this was this this was not something most governments would take. So the approach I took was I went in and saw a vice minister, um, and I said. Uh, I have an important message, and I said we can look at it negatively or positively. I said the, the negative is we're setting some criteria on things like this. I said the positive thing is we now know what the U.S. government position is, mm -hmm. and so we can start to figure out how to deal with the problem. Uh, I said when we didn't know, all we knew is that some bombshell was out there that was going to explode. Yeah. So I said uh, my own judgment is looking on this as clarifying for us what we need to address, that's useful for us. It produced this, a one-minute silence. <laughs> and they ended up agreeing to talk to us on it. Ambassador Stapleton Roy, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.